0: Thanks for checking out the Big Sky Boneheads podcast. My name's Michael Gray. His name is Scott Hershey. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it. By the side of the road, truck stop, wherever it is you uh, dug this thing up. Please uh, do all the things, unless you hate it, in which case you can skip that step. Um, And if you found it by the side of the road, pick it up and share it with someone else. Yeah, there you go. It's not contagious, we think. Maybe it is. Mostly. Looking forward to our guest. Uh, This week, Tony Butler, interesting guy, man, Uh, former West Point grad, black belt in jiu-jitsu, author, CEO. Um, His bullet points on LinkedIn are more successful than anything I've done, (laughs) and uh, we haven't even talked to him yet. So that's coming up in a little bit. Uh, Montana's been in all of the headlines uh, this week with the floods and the closing of the north entrance to Yellowstone National Park. And it looks like that's on the mend. Right, um, Trying to make some adjustments and dig new roads Real, real
1: fast In the course of just a couple of days We went from uh, them expecting the north entrance to the park To be closed
0: for a year or two and then all of a sudden it was like, no, it could be a reopening this season. It is something to see when your state's primary revenue generator is threatened, how quickly they can mobilize me? be like, no, 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 no. We can make a road. Yeah, there's com- uh, complete communities that would be threatened by that.
1: And instead now, um, everybody who's going to the park has to go through the other three
0: entrances, <laughs> which means um, that the... It's a lot more crowded. Yeah, this won't make me popular anywhere in the state of Montana, but the only thing that I wanted less than Yellowstone crowds was bigger Yellowstone crowds. Uh, <laughs> that's what keeps me out of the park, is the fact that you see these people, they're lined up, and now we've got to do, what is it, odd-numbered Tuesdays? Yeah, odd numbers on odd numbers. Even-numbered license uh. plates on the when the moon is waxing in
1: Sagittarius. Or so unless something. you're a motorcycle group, and then you have to go to the end of the line <laughs> on the
0: right, and then you have to come in on the other days. So uh they came up with a numeric system and this is really for the people that are traveling in from out of state. If you're coming to Yellowstone, <laughs> you need to know these things. They've gone to a license plate number system oh. where is it even, is even it? on e- e- if it ends in an even number, you only get to go on even dates. Okay. And if it ends on an odd number, odd dates. And if you have a vanity plate because you're you're odd. <laughs> because you're a vanity plate guy. <laughs> Uh, You're odd Yeah And that's even Outside of this system You're still odd <laughs> Right <laughs> you paid the extra money now you go on the odd days uh so yeah that's all been going on and it's uh, been something to see not just the local reaction and obviously uh the federal state and local governments trying to mobilize because it really is a big problem for all of those communities down there that were devastated not only by the floods but by the financial impact of having all of those people and all of that business taken away from them uh but we've got celebrities kicking in yeah. All of a sudden, John Mayer jumped up like Puxitani right. Phil. He's like, man, I'm going to do some stuff.
1: John Mayer and Kelly, and uh, he's, he's helping with uh, a text number and his social media. He's got a lot of social media followers. He's got, you know, maybe if his fans chip in, that'll help. People I like just them. thought of something, though. I thought of a great idea. What if they treated Yellowstone Park now like a very hip nightclub? What if they had like a velvet rope? What if you had to prove that you were worthy to get in? Like only the cool people get in, it would be only the touristy of the tourists get in. Like they'd have to look in your car and they'd say, all right, dad, cargo shorts, check. All right, sandals, socks, you're good. How about the kids? Let's take a look at those. All right, they got the touristy t-shirts on. (laughs) And then somebody's got to have a big camera. Okay, big camera, you're in. And instead of doing it by this stupid number system on the license plates, we just have big night guards, uh, those like security guards who let in people who
0: fit. Here's the thing nobody's said. I haven't heard anybody bring this up. But with the north entrance washed out, and it's down for we don't know how long, right? Mm-hmm, so you right. can't go through Gardner. You can't even get in the park. The five entrances of the park, three of them are currently open. The the north entrance one, what are the animals doing while we're not in there? What's that going to look like? The same thing. What happens if? I don't think they change. Look, but here's the thing. Okay. They're, they're getting used to having, there's no more traffic. They're not dealing with people. What happens if we go through all this trouble, we spend a billion dollars, however much it takes, Drill a new road (laughs) through a new mountain. We get this shiny new everything. We put up the new gates. Gardner is thrilled. Everybody books their room. They line up with their stupid RVs and their stupid Subarus, and they're ready to go with their kids and everything else. And they go in, and the bears are just sitting there like, finally! And they eat the first person that comes through the gate. <laughs> what happens? somebody It's going to be somebody from Oregon. They're going to get out. They're going to see a baby bear. The baby bear is going to be bait. All right, Mama's just going to say, you know what? They seem to like you guys. I'm going to sit you by the roadside. They're going to get out of their car. And then, Wham! and then trevor gets eaten by a bear and you know it's all going to be on film because they're going to tape that first person through the north entrance of yellowstone like they're launching the titanic you know they're going to do that the second guy's going to drive past and go in that's what's going to (laughs) happen so if you're hearing me and you think about this remember that if you want to be there for the grand reopening of the north entrance of yellowstone be the second guy Don't be the first guy. I worry for the first guy's safety. I feel like the first guy's going to be food because those animals are used to seeing people, and then people are going to go away, and they're like, I don't know, I guess we hang out in what's left of the road now. And then some guy's going to come along in a car and like, oh, that's right, they're tasty. Mm. What if they just get punted by a bison? I hope so. Oh, my God, what great fun that would be. They should wear GoPros so we can watch it in real time. Everybody get a GoPro. Just just live stream. Put it on your little funny hat that you got at REI and then then walk in the park just to see what happens. Because you've seen it in places like Chernobyl, right? We blew up Chernobyl, left it alone, and then we come back 20 years later when the radiation dies down a little bit and you got your hazmat suit on and what you find out are, there are radioactive wolves everywhere. Well, there's no radioactivity where this is involved. It's just the people go away. The animals are going to be like, nice. And then somebody's going to get eaten when they go back in the park to the north entrance. I haven't been able to shake this thought for a few days. Yeah. I'm I'm not well. <laughs> All of that said, it is time to welcome our guest. I'm super excited for this conversation, if only because uh, we're both out way over our skis with this guy. As we welcome West Point graduate, businessman, jiu-jitsu instructor, author, Bronze Star recipient, could go on, but I'm already embarrassed. Uh, Tony Butler, how are you, sir?
2: Hey, I
1: appreciate you guys for having me on.
0: Hey, man, thank you uh, for coming in. Uh, all of those things we we're gonna get to all of those things. You know what I like immediately um, is
1: you just said all those things, and you expect the Rock to come on, right? And uh, Tony's very soft spoken, and I'm sure
0: he's a man of action, but we're gonna get him to talk a little bit today. Well, and I, yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of a part of, and I know a few. Uh, that's a part of that military culture that you come from, uh, you know, Ranger School and all of these things. The guys that I've met with anything like your background, they all tend to be the least assuming, and and it's terrifying because I always want to know where you guys are <laughs> in a crowded environment. Where is that guy? I don't. <laughs> I want to know where you guys are at. Well,
2: I I think a lot of that has to do with when you're in, you're surrounded by. A bunch of guys that know what they're doing you know and for the most part they don't need a lot of direction they just need someone sure. to kind of manage the emotions
0: well so you know we work in radio which is the exact opposite it's an entire industry where no one knows what they're doing right and chaos is kind of the, <laughs> the rule it's yeah an, we're loud people of little <laughs> substance so it's kind of the opposite <laughs> it's an entire industry built on c students yeah um let's start with uh the jujitsu stuff. Let's just start there. Okay. Because that was the thing I kind of I found you um by mistake. I heard a thing about uh you know, kids and an open house and a jujitsu school. I've trained a little. That's yeah, all I'm yeah. going to say. What belt? Belt? Oh, I'm a black belt. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've been training I, over 20 years. He says that like I No, I've had coffee. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm all right. Cause I am alright i i have trained a little bit enough to know that it's um hard. Yeah, I you know, most people
2: quit jiu-jitsu. It's why there's so few black belts, and I'm one of only a, a handful of black belts in, in Montana. Um, and, you know, I've had the opportunity to train with some of the best in jiu-jitsu, in sport jiu-jitsu and fighting all over the world.
0: So, Why I, did you stick with it? Because it is hard. And I think a lot of people get into it. it hurts. It, Even if you do it really well, it hurts. It doesn't hurt
2: most of the time, I'll say. it. It's hard all <laughs> of the time, though. Right. That's the one thing I think the big difference between jujitsu and most other martial arts is the level of intensity that you can experience. You know, a lot. And when you know, when you're in regular karate or taekwondo, and they have a they have a kata, and you know, you're you're waving your fists in the air. Well, it's not really doing anything. But with jujitsu, when you win a jujitsu match against a fully resisting opponent, you actually want to fight. You know, we don't actually punch and kick, but if we did, it, it would still be pretty much the oh, same. A fight. And if you watch the UFC, you know, obviously jujitsu is one third of it. So you have wrestling, Muay Thai, and jujitsu, and that's that's part of the fight. But in the original UFCs, it was designed by Brazilians, by the Gracies, to be a fight. And, you know, um, for me, I think I've stuck with it for so long, it's just therapy. You know, you, you're there with a group of friends who can wake up in the morning, you go train, You know, maybe a train in the night and, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you battle with your friends and at the end of the class, you just feel good. There's no, there's no ego. There's no stress. You're just on the mat faced with an opponent. Your partners so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun
1: I think a lot of people know that there are um, there are differences to the martial arts disciplines and uh, all I know about uh, jiu-jitsu is is from watching uh, Royce Gracie and some of the Gracies who are in MMA um, in the early parts of it and I know uh, what they were doing was a lot of ground-based stuff so kind of what is the overall kind of signature of jiu-jitsu as compared with the other forms? The signature, of ju- the signature of jiu-jitsu is that it's real. You know,
0: every
2: martial art has some benefit in that you're doing an activity, you're doing a sport, you're doing something athletic. It's really good for kids, you know, and I'm not against that. But the one thing that differentiates jiu-jitsu versus every other martial art out there, it's proven in a fight. It's proven in every single situation you can think of in, in terms of fighting. And, It's just pragmatic and is really good for someone who is smaller and skilled to overcome someone who's bigger than they are. You know, I think that's the the big there's no there's no kata in jujitsu either. You're able to overcome and win, or you're not.
1: There's no paint the fence. There's no paint the fence. There's
2: no. It, it's funny because I quote Mister Miyagi in every class that I teach. I'm like, okay, listen, Mister Miyagi said, "Look eye, look eye. Don't look at their eyes. Look at their hands. All the bad stuff comes from their hands." Yeah. Their eyes don't hit you. Their eyes do not hit you. That's exactly right. You know, and i i've I've taught law enforcement all around the country, and been at the Secret Service Academy, and you know, with people who. Are experiencing violence on a daily basis and there's been all kinds of studies especially coming out of Texas that law enforcement who use jiu-jitsu they actually have fewer injuries on the job fewer times when they gotta escalate force to something different rather than just laying hands on someone and, and submitting them and like making them comply um, you know unless you've trained more likely than not if I needed to put cuffs on you I could and what I try to do is just teach every student is like, look, there, there's some, a few basics of controlling someone's body with violence. And then it's actually pretty easy once you get to know the system and understand it and can apply it and you get some skills.
0: That was my experience with my training. And it, when I did it, I was in a class where I had to work with the instructor. It was, it was bigger than everybody else. And it was predominantly women. And so he was like, all right, you and me, anytime we had to spar, it was me and him. And I got humbled fast uh this guy we called him ninja craig he's he a he's a black belt he's craig he was like you he's very soft-spoken he's very unassuming he wasn't as big as i was and it was the ease with which he annihilated me I, it, it wasn't he didn't even he was like he could tell me what he was about to do i'm like ha ha and then he would do it and I was like, "There's no way you can do that if you're going to tell me first. And then he would do it. And you know, I think you um, should show us that on Mike right now. No. I would like to see that. <laughs> that was when I was young and spry. <laughs> It'd be so much
1: easier at 47. I know oh. I'm easy to take down. I would like to see that. No,
0: it uh, is it, it, the the nature of it. How do you teach the How do you start teaching the essentials to kids? Because that's something that interests me. I've got I've got an 11 and a, a oh, I screwed up 14 year old. They just had birthdays and. It's something that I think would be great for both of them, but I couldn't imagine how you start with something that's a blank slate. Yeah, kids are great. Um, They learn jiu-jitsu faster than everyone, and
2: interesting enough, jiu-jitsu is dominated by girls at the younger ages, so from about six to around 11 or 12, girls dominate. They pay more attention. They learn their moves faster. They just, you know, anyone who says that there's no difference between boys and girls is crazy because... The boys are savages from the moment they walk in. They're, ah, they're running all around and the girls are paying attention and they're listening. So what I tend to do is teach them movement first and strategy and then have that really help inform them on, okay, here's the basics. There's just some core fundamentals from every position and, and that's it. Um, so the the most common, the mo- the first few things that we're teaching kids is we're teaching the basics of arm bars the basics of chokes, and then how to, ex- how to escape from every position. When I have a kid come and, you know, families usually will come for a few months. Maybe they'll sign up for two months or three months or six months. Um, I, I have a few kids that have been with us since we opened, okay? And what I try to convey to those that are only going to be with us for a short while is just a real sense of self-defense. So that if they were ever at school and someone tried to bully them, there's just no chance. They're just bullyproofed. And I actually put that on my car. It's like,
0: we're building bully-proof kids. Um, it's so important right now. It, it mm-hmm. is. Because it's such a major part of existing for, for kids in a lot of environments. It, it's a major
2: part of existing. It's it's confidence. It's getting in touch with movement and their bodies. You know, And I, I laugh because we're pulling kids off of the Xbox to take them to jujitsu, jitsu And so we get there and it's like, I need them to focus. And so I've got to get them moving and make it dynamic and make it something that's interesting for them. So they want to come back and they want to learn. And then when they have a group of friends there, it just becomes this little club. And so they want to come to class. They're looking forward to it. And it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a harmonic cycle. Kids that do sports, they do better in life. Girls that do sports all the way into high school, they do better at everything. They have better grades better self-esteem they choose better partners i mean it's there's no downside to it at all
1: what kind of a change do you see in the kids um, personalities when they come in especially kids who might need it the kids who do get bullied kids who do who are looking for something to uh, to kind of uh, defend themselves against uh, the things that we see in schools all the time the physical part's one thing teaching them how to do it but what about the mental aspect of it? How do you how do you see that develop? Because I'm sure it's something that kind of comes naturally through the through the process. The, the thing is, people are afraid of the unknown, so
2: you know. And I'll, I'll give you a, an experience. Like the first time you go into a combat situation, everyone is, is everyone has got the adrenaline's running because you don't know what's going to happen. You you got a plan. You think that's going to go, but you don't know what the enemy's going to do. And with a kid, it's the same thing. Is their imagination is going haywire on what what might be in front of them? What could happen in that fight? What what they might do? What What is the bully really going to do to them? Well, then they come in in a safe environment with their friends, and they train, and they realize jujitsu is a fight. And then by the end, they've been there a few months, and they realize, I've been in 30 or 40 fights. And you know what? Nothing bad happened. And I you know what? I won some of those. And matter of fact, I can stop everything. And that just gives them confidence, and then they're not afraid anymore.
0: And then when people start jawing, and I'm going to beat you up, they
2: don't feel fear anymore. They That's
0: don't. what I see in everybody I know that is that is well versed in in any of the martial arts, but especially the jujitsu guys I know. Nothing rattles them. It's amazing when you know for a fact that you could. All right, I'll never. I, the first time I ever got choked out was the most amazing experience of my life. For that, I'm like, I didn't know you could do that to me. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anyone could do that to anyone else, and it happened. In a second, I'm like, "Yeah, you got," one. and I'm like, "And I was coming too, mid talking junk," and Craig put me out, and that was that. And I was like, "Huh, okay."
2: Well, he shouldn't have been putting you out. You should have been tapping. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't,
0: I didn't get a chance. My, it was my, so fast. My
2: I, number one skill is I'm a black belt in tapping. I've I've been tapped by some of the best, so it's uh it's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I tell the kids it's like, tapping is not winning or losing. Tapping is reset, so we can train some more. That's what it's about.
0: Who do you train with now?
2: So right now, I mean, I, I have my own school. Right. Bearhug Jiu-Jitsu and students. And we then, will
0: include uh, all the links to all of this stuff, by the way, in the show description so that people can find you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and then I actually I took,
2: I took, got my black belt from a guy here in town, Jim Collins. He was Montana's first black belt. And Jim used to be on the professional rodeo circuit, big, strong, scary, scary guy. He used to work for the UFC. He was on um, Dana White's security team and done bouncing and things. And he's super tough, really good. He's been training well over 25 years. Um, and then he was under this Brazilian guy named Fretson Pacquiao, who's a world champion. And Fretson lives in Vegas now, and he comes up to Montana all the time.
0: And those are the guys that you roll with? Those are the guys that
2: I train with and learn yeah. from myself. And I spend most of my time teaching these days. Um I've been a black belt. I've been training for a long, long time. I, I had trained back east for a number of years in New York City, and my original teacher was Marcelo Garcia, who's like, in jiu-jitsu. he's like the Michael Jordan of jiu-jitsu. Right. You know, he invented some of the moves that I'm teaching. <laughs> um, he's this little guy, and just in his day, he was he was the best ever. So um, yeah, I've been really fortunate in that. I've had some interactions with some great people. I, I trained with Hoist Gracie quite a bit. I trained with his cousin, Rodrigo Gracie. Uh, back when I thought I was going to do MMA, Rodrigo was just coming back from Japan. He was in he was in Pride. They used to have a it was bought by the UFC. Right. And Rodrigo came and he's like he's putting on an MMA seminar. So I go to this seminar with Rodrigo and at the end of it, it was really good, really technical. And at the end of it, you know, this is a guy who's done jiu-jitsu his entire life. The only thing he's done his whole life is fight. And so we're you know we're doing some friendly matches, no no punches, but we had gloves on, and so. I get in the ring with him and whew, I jump down there and I start. I pull a single leg on him. I'm like, "Oh my god, get this on video! I'm about to take Rodrigo down!" You know, I'm like, and then he presses me over his head. <laughs> <laughs> and l- luckily for me, you know, his counter was you know was very good, and he was way stronger than me and like way better in every way.
1: And as he puts me down gently and doesn't hurt me, I realize maybe i won't be that good at ufc <laughs> now now with these things uh and and we're gonna uh, talk about ranger training being one of them as well about, about that aspect of your life but what do you um i know you talked about kids and fear and, and people with fear how do you teach people how do you how do you get people? to basically almost embrace the pain part of it because there is pain there's a difference between you know pain and and injury pain where where you're you know you're in a position in a fight where somebody's actually injuring your body but the pain aspect of it getting punched in the face once getting that that fear how do you how do you approach that with these kids before do you do it before they start grappling so with the kids we don't do any striking at all mm-hmm. none
2: um i i'm not i've had A couple of different boxing instructors approach us and say, hey, we want to do kids' boxing. like, not at this gym. And the reason for that is I don't want young kids being hit in the head. Mm -hmm. Don't like it. There's tons of data that it's not a good thing for them. I want them to do the opposite. I want them to understand the whole process and have it not be painful, have it be hard, but not painful. And to ease them into it. So they've seen this scenario over and over and over again. And so then when something finally does happen, they've already seen it. They already understand. So they're not afraid of it and they approach it. Um, I think about like you you ever hunt. Oh yeah. So think about the first time, like the very first time you're behind a rifle and you're looking at an elk, you're looking at a deer and you're like, Oh my gosh. And your heart is like elevated and you're like, you're getting ready to pull the trigger. Well, that first time is totally different than the third, the fourth, the fifth, the tenth time. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the kids it's the exact same way. Where we're helping them build confidence, then a little bit at a time, a little bit brick by brick by brick, and then one day at the end they realize, you know what? No one can stop me. Nothing can stop me. No one can hurt me.
1: So the pain aspect is once if you're feeling it, there's something you can do about it to stop. That's it. exactly it, is they build confidence by
2: coming to class and building skill. You know, and and it's it's one of those things is that Fear of the unknown is way worse than what's right in front of you and happening right in the moment. That's the difference. You know, and for kids, it's, um, you know, sometimes we'll get a kid who's real shy and they're quiet and they don't want to do anything. And and I, I I say, like, you see that little girl over there? She's only five. She's doing her moves. Like, you can do this too, right? Another kid did it. You can do it too. Mm-hmm. There's
0: nothing stopping you. Let's, let's try. Let's try. So just ease them into it. So let's get into the chicken or the egg thing, because you were training in, I believe it was judo in the 1970s? So as a kid up in Thompson Falls, they used to have a judo instructor
2: up there back in the day. And so I was a little kid, and they took us, and I started
0: learning judo. And then West Point, 92, the military career a little bit later. Was this always your personality, or have you developed this over years of training and realizing that you could, in a room like this, for example, wipe anybody out and then leave very calmly? Well, I think I've always been really overconfident. (laughs) (laughs) I see it in both my sons. You know,
1: they have. They're probably quietly overconfident. They they have all kinds of confidence. I I knew a guy in high school went to ranger school, and and nobody, I think, in high school knew that he was going to do that. I don't think any of us expected that he was the type of person to do that because he was quiet, he wasn't boastful, and he went to – and at the end of high school, we're like, Kevin went to – ranger school what it was surprising but uh, he probably a similar situation he was quietly confident well the thing is I, I didn't start
2: there i started as enlisted right so i when i first joined the army i was getting out of high school i didn't know what i want to do with myself so i enlisted in the army as a mechanic and what happened was i i had i had a couple of really lucky lucky breaks like one, one thing i i can say skill set wise as a kid that i had is i can shoot I can shoot in a way that very few people can shoot like I can. Um, So I get to my first unit. I'm over in Germany. It's the 80s. And I got this additional duty. I got assigned to a rifle range over there. It's a NATO base. And so they're shooting all the different NATO weapons. So a bunch of NATO pistols and machine guns and rifles and the U.S. stuff, too. And I was there. So I was just camping at this rifle range with, just think of, like, mountains of ammunition. Like, every shooter's dream, that's what I lived. I was, like, camping at a rifle range with as much ammo as I could ever shoot in my entire life, ever. I like it. And so I was there for weeks and weeks. Well, one day I'm out there, and we were running different countries and officers enlisted through these rifle ranges and these different qualification courses and things. And, you know, people would get pretty frustrated, and I could do trick shots. And so one of the things I would do is— the the, the commander of the range was this German colonel, this guy, and he had a, an NCO that worked for him. And so I would sit way over on the far side, and they'd get someone who couldn't shoot very well, and I would help him with his targets. I would shoot all the way across the range, even out to 300, 400 meters, and I would knock down their targets for them. So you'd hear pop, pop. If their first shot was theirs, they would miss, and then I would put the target <laughs> down for them. <laughs> he would be like, he would like, he'd be like, Private Butler. I need this officer to pass. Go to, <laughs> go to your lane. I'd be like, all right. And so I'd just be down there, and they're like, doo, 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 doo. he doesn't know that I'm shooting his lane. <laughs> well, so one day I'm out there and I'm doing that, and there is this American officer who was a West Point grad, and he had been the captain of the pistol and rifle team at West Point, and he saw me shooting. And at the time, I was a private E two, so I just got promoted my first my first promotion. And he comes up to me and he's like, hey. And I said, yes, sir. What's up? And he's like, I've never seen anyone shoot like that. He's like, you should go to West Point and be on the pistol team, and rifle team. I was like, really? What is that? I, I mean, I didn't even know what it was. And I mean, no one in my no one in my family even graduated high school. So both my parents were high school dropouts. My mom got pregnant when she was 16. Um, so I didn't have this like pathway to college. It wasn't even something that was on my my radar. And so it just happened. I was in a nuclear unit at the time back in the day when the army used to have nukes. Mm -hmm. So in those units, all of the officers are one level above normal. So like a company commander is a major, the battalion commander is a colonel, a full bore colonel, you know, the brigade commander is a general. And it just happened for whatever reason, luck you might call it. Everyone in my chain of command was a West Point grad. And so I didn't know any of these guys that Lieutenant Frost was his name. He took me and he helped me get letters of recommendation from everyone in the chain. They all gave him just didn't even know me on his recommendation. And, They read what I had done in in, with the shooting and whatnot, and they referred me to West Point. So I apply, and I don't get in. And West Point's like, well, you're not really qualified. You don't have your test scores weren't high, and you didn't have good enough grades in high school. They're like, so we want you to go to the prep school. So West Point has a prep school, and that time it used to be down in southern New Jersey. Yeah, like right, like New Jersey. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been. I've driven through it. If the world was flat. And the hell and hell was like on the abyss New Jersey is right on the edge of it okay? that's what that's what northern Jerseys like it's it's nice. for some of them for here I'm, I'm sure yeah yeah so, the right way to describe it so they, they sent us they send me down to Jersey and you get there and there's about 300 guys and you're competing and and some women also and you're competing for appointments and so luck have it I made it through I passed and then in 92 I got an appointment from Montana to West Point um, and that was after having served for three years as enlisted. So. so then you're four years through that. Yep. So then one year at the prep school, then four years at West Point. And then I got commissioned as a, an infantry officer. And then all infantry officers have the exact same career path. They all You go to the infantry officer's basic course, and then you go to ranger school. And then if you pass those two things, then you go out into the ranks. And uh, I didn't pass ranger school. So I went the first time, failed miserably, um, was out like around week three, tore my shoulder, tore tore my rotator cuff. Um, Then I ended up going to the 101st Airborne, was there for about a year and a half, and they wanted to send me back. And so then I went to the 101st pre-ranger course, didn't get through the pre-ranger course, got hurt a second time. And then years later as a captain... Which is unheard of. I went back, and when I graduated, I was the, one of the oldest guys. They had graduated in years. Um, so, I graduated on my third, third time. So, I pretty much suck at being an angel. <laughs> so. Um, but, you know, and just to clarify, that's a graduate of the Ranger School. I did not serve in the Ranger Regiment, and there's a, there's a distinction in the community. So anyone asks me, hey, are you Special Forces? No, I wasn't Special Forces. I was infantry, and I was Ranger Qualified, but not Special Forces. It's not
0: it. Well, the good news is nobody in this room uh, approaches any of that. If you suck at being a Ranger, then we're, I don't know what kind of diabolical level of bad. <laughs> I feel bad at life. Uh, by comparison, so
2: well um, the, the thing that Ranger School teaches you, you know, when I was there, I lost, I, I lost like thirty five pounds, and I was on the extended plan, so it's supposed to be there for sixty days. I was there for more than sixty, a lot more actually. Um, is that random luck exists? Bad things can happen that just are totally out of your control. I I was on a patrol while I was there, and we're walking back, and I had this guy from uh, an SF guy was in my he was in my patrol and we're walking back we're done we're 150 yards away from the barracks we're like we're like yeah we're getting ready to celebrate and we walk down this little kind of grassy knoll and this guy slips on the grass falls down and a stick stabs him directly in his cornea right in his eye and so he's screaming and we're like holy shit so I gotta call a medevac in for him and they come and they take him away I never saw him again Um, and I heard that he lived and he was fine they saved his eye but yeah just slipped on the grass and stick went in his eye um, random happens, and, you know, and just it's out of your control. Nothing you can do.
1: And I know a lot of people. You know, we hear we hear stories of schools like that. The, the things you have to go through. What is, what aspect of the of the range of school was the toughest? And how many times did you have to do it? Yep. The, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent way more time than I probably should have. <laughs> but
2: then when I started getting into different wartime situations and doing deployments, and I. Look back on that time and I'm like you know what, war is not that hard. <laughs> at least I get to eat most of the time, and if I don't have any food, I'll steal it from the enemy. So you know it's it's a little bit easier than that because um, you're not being starved and you're not you know the the physicality of it is not quite as bad um, just because you have a little more rest. Because at Ranger School, it's a they're making it hard, they're making it as painful as they possibly can because their number one goal in life is to make you quit because that's their goal. Like they can make you quit and they can break it that's what they're really looking for because they want you to be mentally strong more than anything else.
0: How does that inform your civilian life? Because you've had a pretty big cross section throughout the military going in uh, straight out of high school, West Point, not West Point, not West Point again. Then, you know, Ranger training times two or three. When you come out of all of that, all of that's still contained inside of that military structure, which um, is pretty strong. Well, you come into the civilian world, and you get to do whatever you want, and you are one of the few people who could quite literally do probably almost anything you wanted. I think the one
2: skill that it gave me, because I first got out, you know, I did everything wrong when I transitioned back to civilian life. So my my wife and I had only been married for about 18 months. She was pregnant. I was changing careers. So we changed careers, moved, bought a house, and had a baby all in the same month. So don't do that. It's really, really <laughs> stressful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and so I had no idea how to make money or how to work or what to do as a civilian because they don't pay you a lot of money for punching people in the face. You know, it's just not it's not a good career. Um, And I came back, came back to Helena, came back to Montana. My parents and my brothers are all here and I was looking for a job and I couldn't find anything. And I ended up at a uh, manufacturing plant in Connecticut. It's the only job I could find at the time working as a project manager at this big, big manufacturing place. And I get there and I'm like, God, this is the end of the world. I can't even imagine what am I doing here? (laughs) And, you know, the people there were really nice, really fine people. And I learned so much about business. And it it was actually, it was a really big business, but it was privately owned by this guy. And the one thing that I took from the military that helped me when I started my career was just being relentless. Like just recognizing that if someone else did something, you can do it too. And I think that's, like, the one thing that I was like, man, if this guy, like, he built this giant business all by himself, like, he got started, like, man, I could do something like that. I went to Ranger school, right? I I, I survived the war. I spent two and a half years in combat zones and danger areas and stuff. And I made it through that crap. Like, what are they going to do, kill me? Like, no, it's not that bad. Um, You know, the next thing I know, I ended up in a sales job, and I helped them scale. And then I ended up at a tech startup in New York City. Um, which was like going to a foreign country. I don't know if you've ever been to the city. Mm. You know, I didn't even know how to ride the subway and they this tech startup, they'd found out about me and they invited me down. So I went down to the city, I learned how to ride the subway and I went and I interviewed for a job. And the first hiring manager, he looks at my resume and he looks at me and he just pushes he just pushes it back across the table. He's like, What are you doing here? You're like not qualified at all. And I'm like, I don't know. They invited me. So I went through all of the interviews and they hired me. And a few years later, so we started out, I think I was like employee number 47, something like that. And a few years later, you know, I had over 700 employees and I was their number one guy in the world. So the US, Europe, Australia, and I was doing sales for them. And while I was there, since it was a startup, they didn't really have a marketing team, a little bit. And I helped with the messaging, I helped set up marketing, I did some of my own marketing. And towards the end of the gig, a partner of that company invited me over and hired me to come over and build a sales and marketing team for them. And so I went over and started doing that. It was a tech, an IT support company. And two years in, their board um, they appointed me CEO. And so, big jump. Um, really,
0: are doing all the things. I, I did some things,
2: you know. And I had an IT background at West Point. That was my my. I had a, a double major. So my engineering track was information systems and my major was Russian. So, and that's why I'm married to a Russian woman. Um, And, you know, so I helped scale that company. And after a couple of years, we sold it off. So I knew about six months I was going to be leaving. And then that's when I started this business, um, which is one of, I think, six businesses I've started. So
1: it's almost like we're interviewing three people, and, and it's I all do. in one. It's just uh, it's fascinating.
0: And, yeah, we're interviewing three people, and they all would kick my ass at whatever it is they're good at. <laughs> Smarter, is, tougher, all those yeah, things. Exactly.
1: How do you? Uh, I know I know Mike and I struggle with this, and and I can't imagine. Uh, maybe maybe we need some some sort of instruction on how to deal with as we look at at, at basically society. And and the softness of where we are and how soft it's becoming, how do you handle things like that? Because that, that's our perception. Mike and I talk about it all the time. About we, we, you know, we just live in a world where where attitudes like yours and and toughness like yours, physically, all these things you're overcoming, and and your attitude of of anything can be done. Um, a lot of those things are completely fading. And and how do you keep yourself from just commenting twenty four seven on people and 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 going you know you this is this is, oh, a, this is this is a lot you, you you've got it pretty easy stupid nerfed up world that we lived in <laughs> I, I do my best to
2: mind my own business that's that's the number one thing it's well just,
0: if you've got just six I guess <laughs> <laughs> probably takes most of the day I,
2: I mind my own business that's what I do and you know it's funny because over the years you know i've hired and fired a lot of people and you know you get employees and they come in and they tell you their problems and and i look at them i'm like you realize these are not problems (laughs) (laughs) these are all first world problems like there's nothing in front of you that's hard you know because the thing i think we we've missed and this is one thing that i just loved that i got from the army was you know i've visited dozens of countries and i've been to real third world countries you know where sewage is running in the street as normal Mm-hmm. okay and we don't have that here like our idea of hard is my uber was late and my pizza was cold you oh, god know, help like, me if the wi-fi
0: goes out god right. help me yeah. if the wi-fi is out <laughs> like, like
2: most of our problems are first world problems and we recognize that those aren't just they're just not that real they're just not that big of a deal then what happens is it just helps you focus on okay something bad happens to me so you know life happens life goes wrong you know what do i do what 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 actions am i actually going to take you know am i sitting on the couch am i yelling and screaming and crying Mm -hmm. and bawling to myself or am i actually getting up and doing something about it you know and i think that's the that's the big differentiator that people are missing um so I have a rule in the gym, no whining allowed. <laughs> boys and girls, it doesn't matter what their age, adults even. No no whining. There's no this is this is a whining free zone. I love it. You can't come in here and complain about your life. You can't come in here and complain about your boss or anything else that's going on. You can't come here and tell me you're old cuz you're not older than me. So it's one of those um and it's everyone's got problems and how we deal with them that's what matters do you have kids i do i have two boys and have
1: they picked up on this are they are they uh, uh i mean i'm sure that the that obviously has been instilled in them a little bit but how have they carried on with that? you know i both of my
2: boys are doing really well and i think some of it is a little tough love and they've got a real smart genius mother so she she kind of tempers my hard edges is I that think. a bilingual household it is it is um both of my boys speak fluent russian oh
0: so they know when they're getting cussed out oh, oh yeah 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 <laughs> i know when i'm getting cussed out yeah. it's well, uh, my, my grandmother was french first and that's how i knew she was mad at me because all of a sudden some some gibberish started coming out of her mouth i was five i'm like <laughs> i couldn't understand a word of it but i'm like oh the old lady's mad yeah <laughs> but yeah. that was the only way i knew you know and my my wife comes
2: from uh, a very pragmatic background i mean she was in russia back when you know they were having shortages and bread lines and you know everything was disappearing from the stores i mean she was there during you know sovietsky Soyuz, was like back when the soviet union was there uh, so she doesn't miss it
0: she doesn't miss it at all she likes america <laughs> well she, and, pr- and probably a completely uh, even more magnified kind of context on what you're talking about with first world problems versus yep this is hard i don't have the right shoes absolutely absolutely <laughs> and you know and
2: this is actually this month is our our 20th anniversary is wow this month look and at that yeah we were married in cody just just on the other side of yellowstone um and I, I think her pragmatic views of things have just helped us keep things in perspective she's like yeah this is not hard america's easy
1: <laughs> how does the uh how does the, the the ukraine war affect your household what is that how does how does her feelings uh, about that and yours uh, just grief and sorrow. It's it's one of
2: those. Um, no one understands what's really happening, you know. And and it is a dictatorship. So Putin's going to do what he wants. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It just, you know, um, when you read what Putin has actually written and you read his speeches going back twenty years, this is not a surprise to anyone. You know, he he's written over and over again that he thought that Gorbachev breaking up the Soviet Union was one of the worst things that had happened in the 20th century, you know, and they, they were moving toward having a unified government that ran most of the world. That, that's what that's that's what the idealism was behind right. it. Now, the reality of it for all of the people that were under it was not so great, obviously, um, you know, and all the people disappearing and in gulags and, and prisons, and you know, it was just this horrible thing. But the idealism at the base of it was real. Well, and he's been wanting to get the band back together for a long time. It's not a surprise. Right. It's definitely not a surprise. And he's told us exactly what he's going to do. We just didn't believe him. And now that it's happening, everyone's like waving their hands and saying, we didn't know this was going to happen. It's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we actually did. We knew
0: this. Well, and as a combat specialist, are you surprised at all by the Ukrainian opposition? Because I know that was the the eye-opener for me, according to everything you read and all the stuff. He was going to stomp in and knock this out in a weekend. And then everybody east of kiev was like yeah no i'm gonna shoot you well the difference has to do with identity
2: and how people think of themselves and they think of how they think of their families and i think that there's definitely some animosity between the ukrainians and russian going back decades you know 50 years long time all the way back to world war ii and before you know and putin is citing things he's like. Kiev used to be the head of Russia. It used to be part of Russia. Like, well, yes, but that was hundreds of years ago. And not voluntarily. And not voluntarily. How far back are we going to go? You know, so when you look at that versus Afghanistan, I think no one was surprised about Afghanistan because there's not a real national identity there. They don't think of themselves as Afghanis and they're a unified country with a unified ideal of how things should be. It's just not like that where Ukraine had that. I think Ukrainians are definitely, you know, they're going to fight as hard as they can and with whatever weapons we give them. Um, You
0: know, can they beat Russia? It it
2: remains to be seen. I don't know.
0: All of this is a great segue for the other thing you do in your spare time when you're not running businesses or speaking in Russian. Uh, Primal storytelling. You got a book coming up this fall. Uh, Now I'm going to have to read it. <laughs> so getting a little bit of a preview into what might be in it. Uh talk to me about that. How did that come about and you know what was the experience like putting that thing together? Well, the experience
2: of writing is basically two years worth of visits to the dentist. So every day you sit down and it's like drilling molars. So writing is hard, <laughs> you know, at least for me. And you know, I'm not that good at it. It's the second book that I've done, but this is the first like really I think national kind of idea that I've had, you know, primal storytelling is this idea. And I actually, I didn't realize that I got the basis for it from some combat experiences. And one of the things that happened when I was in Iraq was, uh, was in this town called Fallujah, kind of on the outsides of Baghdad, a lot of fighting's going on there and a lot of resistance, a lot of, a lot of bad battles there. And, you know, the longer we were in country and the more daily combat the more casualties that we took the more of our guys that were killed you know managing the emotions on a daily basis managing anger like what do you do when you got to go and fight and everyone wants to kill someone you know whether they need to be killed or not like that's a difficult thing and you know it's when I really learned the difference between kind of your surface emotions and those primal emotions that come out and they drive you and sometimes you they're good for you and sometimes they're not so as I'm doing all of these startups, one of the things that came out was, you know, obviously I I had to do a lot of marketing. I had to like learn like what moves people to take action from a marketing standpoint. And I, I I did a cross section study of and discovered this thing called evolutionary psychology. And what evolutionary psychology is, is that this idea that technology has changed, all the things that we surround ourselves have changed. But humans themselves have not changed for 70,000 years. Like It's not like evolution has happened in a short amount of time. Okay, The Industrial Revolution is only 150 plus years back. And in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, like everything has changed overnight. Like social media and smartphones and digital addiction and all of these things. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. In 1988, I met my great-grandfather. Okay, He was a rancher his whole life. That's all he did. And one of the things, so we went and we were having a party for his 90th birthday because he was born in the 1890s. And one of the things he told us at his birthday party, he's like, yeah, my, my dad voted for Lincoln. Okay. <laughs> now, I want you to think about perspective, that. perspective, yeah. In his life, when he was born, he was born at home in a house made of earth and wood with a well. They dug themselves an outhouse, basically the same technology they had when the Romans, you know, ruled, ruled ruled the mediterranean um and most of the known world like it was the same technology from the time he was born until the time he died he went from he remembered when they added electricity to the house oh Mm -hmm. when they got indoor plumbing that was a big thing all the way to the space shuttle and the computers okay now we're looking at artificial intelligence and hey we're gonna start a colony on mars and we got smart cars that are driving for us and you know i mean it's just it's Mm -hmm. just this earth shattering change but you know what we haven't changed. So primal storytelling it's about how to create marketing that's for humans and not for the bots. Like how do you create a a, a campaign that's going to go viral? Well, you link it to primal emotions. You link it to those things that make us human. All of the top marketers, all of them in every category. You can look at whether it's healthcare or electric cars or selling baby formula, whatever it is, when they link a campaign to a primal emotion, and they're more human with it, it's 10x the response rate. It's 10x the movement and the sales that you're going to get with any other kind of campaign. That's why most corporate blogs fail. Why do they fail? Because they're writing about themselves. They're writing about the stuff they do. Mm-hmm. Hey, we make fences, and here's how big the fences are, and here's how wide they are, and we can put them out, and you know, no one cares about your fences. They don't, you know. And so. What I do is I help companies think of a story, and a series of stories that
0: they can link
2: out to their audience using primal storytelling.
0: So it's a it's a content system. It's it's make some a, a, make somebody feel something. It's kind of a, make a, make a reason. Feel something.
1: The early internet was about cat videos and Alyssa Milano. It's these <laughs> what were we first interested in, and then all of a sudden you, it was it was social media today. But it was it was a long t- you know that to me that that says a little bit about the same thing about about reaching something and that just it was weird how it started now or where we're reaches every direction but uh, I always uh, your your thoughts about your grandfather brought to mind I, I once had a chance to talk to at the time the oldest man in the world he lived in Great Falls his name was Walter Brunig, and I worked in the same building that he lived in oh wow and uh, so I actually got a chance to sit down and uh, and talk to him on several occasions but my uh, my daughter interviewed him and uh, she did it for uh, a class project and one of the things he said was when i was a kid he said we didn't know nothing and i was uh, and and we kind of giggled a little bit and he said no no he says we didn't know anything we didn't have books we didn't have a daily newspaper exactly we didn't know anything past the horizon of where our land was we didn't know the news of the day we didn't know what was going on in the city that we would go to on occasion and he's his the aspect of that struck me so much about how far we've come. Just exactly like you said, we've gone from that to now we think we know everything. We think we know everything. And
2: we think that all change, all new technology is good. I would make the argument that it's not like, like one of the best things that I've done in the last few years is I took my youngest son's cell phone away from him. He's in high school and it just was killing him. Took it away. Different boy, different boy. Um, I don't think we know Like, what is the long-term effect of digital addiction, you know? And, like, you see these kids, and they have their cell phones, and they're glued to them, and they're doing all these things on social media, and we don't know what it it really means for them. And I think it's confusing. It wastes a lot of their time. It's definitely addicting. So less of that, more jujitsu, and it's a better life for sure. I have a
1: 16-year-old daughter, and I feel like it would take all the jujitsu and ranger training to take her (laughs) cell phone away.
0: (laughs) i've seen I her swing lose. a softball bat. you're, you're losing that <laughs> <laughs> that's a fight
1: you can't win would be very difficult <laughs> yeah
2: that's a that's a tough one you know and i i think Ooh, my bad it's a big uh it's a big opportunity for montana because we have something that everyone else wants and that's a quality of life Like, if you've been to any of these big cities and you see how people live, like, it's crazy. It is crazy. I knew when I was having kids that I was not going to raise my kids in New York City. It just wasn't something we were going to do. So when I finally made the leap to move everything back to Montana and come back to Helena, I was like, this is something I have to do. Whether it costs me a lot of money or not, or lose some business. I Actually, I don't care. Um, But now that we're connected to the whole world, and it's not like Montana's behind. We have high speed internet all around town here, and some of the other cities have got it. <laughs> nope, there... nope,
0: nope, nope, nope. You got here on a horse for anybody listening out of state. <laughs> had to fight three grizzly bears Still to get do it. a lot of uh, wagon bound mail delivery, <laughs> all of that. It, it
2: can't be a reverse. But right. What we can do is we can raise the living of everyone who's here and who's going to stay. I think we're one good winter away. From getting rid of all those people who like don't know <laughs> they don't know what they're facing. I was like, you guys don't remember. I, I actually remember this. I, I was coming home for Christmas and I was uh I was doing some training in California and I was out in uh Fort Ord, California. It's a big post they used to have there. It's closed now. The seventh Infantry was there. And um I call my mom and I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna be on this flight, I'm flying into Helena, and she's like, She's like, What coat do you have? Like, what do you mean? 70 degrees here. So <laughs> flying from Fort Ord, California to Helena was a hundred degree temperature change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Minus 30. Oh, yeah. Have oh, a nice yeah, yeah. day. It yep. was like minus 30. It was 40 degree. Um, and of course, my dad was not one of those people who could live in town. So he was one of the very first people. He built a house um, down off of Austin out there. I don't know if you've ever heard of Skelly Gulch, way out there off a of bird's Eye. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the very first people out there. I'm like, Dad, why do you live out here? It's like, this is near the end of the world. And he's like, well, if I want to pee off my porch, I can. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, that's <laughs> priorities. I get it. I get it. So... Well,
0: And you kind of answered the question that I, that I wanted to ask you. You've seen a lot of the world, and we've we've talked to a number of people for this show, and that's always one question. As you see all the world and you get to be around the country and and you return here, you return home. Um, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like maybe that was part of the plan all along.
2: It was. And I was glad to be back. I love fishing. So I love being near the lakes. I love, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a fly fishing this year. I have mostly just done, you know, you are better off fishing.
0: You better off without fly fishing. In no, your life. no, no, no you, I gotta I fly, love, you have to fly <laughs> fish. I love fishing too. I tried fly fishing. It made me want to kill people and you've already done that. So <laughs> you don't need to waste your time. No, you'll love it.
2: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to give that a try at some point this year. And I see the personality difference between yeah, you two. No, You're like, going to love it. He hates it. He's got that Zen daddy thing. He'll yeah. be out there all day. He'll be an expert at it by the end of the
0: afternoon. You
2: know, but the big thing, the reason I, I opened this school up during the middle of the pandemic, like we hired the architect, it was like the height of, you know, he was like, hey, I was like, hey, can we meet? He's like, oh, I don't know if we could do that, you know. <laughs> and I, because I, I was looking around town, I was like, there is nothing for kids to do right now. Like, you it's can't true. go anywhere. <laughs> In December, like what activities do little boys have to do in December? Like, there's almost nothing. You know, I got a little bit of hockey, you know, they got a little bit of, you know, the wise got some basketball. I'm like, we need some alternative things, you know, and I, I love the fact that we're right next door to the gymnastics, the HHC, the gymnastics place, and we got a ballet place across. And, you know, so if sister's doing ballet, brother's over doing jujitsu. If, you know, if sister's doing jujitsu, brother's at, at, Gymnastics, and it's like a nice little corner with things to do for the kids. And you know, I've got a lot of adults too. And then we're right next to the brewery, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys have been in that place, it's, it's crazy, it's so nice. Um, they've yeah. done a
0: great job. I watched it get built, yeah. Uh, that, but, uh, that, that used yeah. to be my dog walking, used part. to be a block from my house, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that place is amazing. I was right out back. Well, bear hug jujitsu. Um, any other uh, any other places people can find you? You want them to look you up you on can, the interwebs?
2: I am on Instagram. It's Anthony L. Butler. It's Just one. Okay, um, and then yeah. I'm- I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome.
0: Well, we will include those links in the show notes. Um, Tony, I was, I was looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, um, and
1: good luck with the company and, and, the, and the Jesus to and uh, the training book, and everything. Yeah. And the
0: fly fishing. Yeah. And the child rearing. <laughs> and uh, we could go on. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate it. That's it for us. Thanks again to Tony for coming on in. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back next week.